the choir just beautifully sang a prayer that the Lord would, would lift up his countenance upon us. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image, a, a prayer that the, that the Lord would show his love to us. And love is what we're going to be talking about this morning. But before we talk about love, I want to talk about soda. When I was a kid, Pepsi launched a brand new ad campaign, and some of you all will remember this, and it was aimed directly at Coca-Cola. I don't know that anything like this had been done before. It was the blind taste test, right? Uh, In parking lots and grocery stores around the nation, loyal Coke drinkers were were invited to do this this blind taste test of, of, of soda or Coke or pop or whatever you call it based on where you grew up. And, um, and again and again, it, it appeared, at least according to the ads, it appeared that these loyal Coke drinkers preferred Pepsi when they didn't know what the label was, when they couldn't see it. They would choose Pepsi over and over and over again. It was amazing. And you know what happened? Coke blinked. They did. They rolled out new Coke. Those of you that are too much younger than me have no idea what I'm talking about. But they rolled out new Coke, and it was then, actually, that the real taste test happened, right? The the real taste test began. And it turns out, in the real taste test, new Coke bombed. I mean, people didn't like it. And, I mean, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the real thing, Right? It wasn't the real thing. And so very quickly, it didn't take long at all, original Coke was rebranded as classic Coke, being sold on the shelves right next to new Coke, and then gradually new Coke just kind of disappeared. You couldn't find it on the shelves anymore. And before long, classic Coke was rebranded yet again as Coke, the new original, right? Now, the story of New Coke Classic Coke is legendary in the corporate world. It's a lesson in many things, not least the enduring power of of the true original, the the, the real thing, a a good idea right at the beginning. It, It really didn't need to be improved upon. This winter, we are looking at authentic Christianity, and we're using the letter of 1 John. And we're asking the question, as John asks, what distinguishes, when it comes to Christianity, what distinguishes the real thing from false claims? And it turns out that the taste test in real life is just as significant for Christianity as it is for soda. That that it's the taste test in real life, not, not the glitzy advertising promo that maybe you see in church on Sunday morning. But real life that that distinguishes true Christianity. When we see the love of the original, and who's the original? What's the original? The original is Jesus Christ. When we see the love of the original newly reproduced in our own lives, when the world can taste that, when we can taste it, then we know that we're looking at true Christianity. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 
1 John chapter 2, verse 7, verse 7. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's found on page 1,899, 1,899. If you're not used to getting around in a Bible, the big number on the page is the chapter number. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, and the small numbers are verses, and I'm going to refer to them periodically. You'll probably be helped if you just leave your Bible open, because we're going to go back again and again to this passage. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, and I'm going to read uh, from verse 7 down to ver- through verse 14. 1 John 2, beginning with verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, last week, John presented the first test, uh, the, the first mark of the genuine Christian. It was the test of obedience. That's what we saw in those opening verses of chapter two. People, we saw uh, people who have been forgiven by Jesus live like Jesus. That was kind of the main point of last week's sermon, all 52 of us who were able to kind of walk to church or get here in our, in our four-wheel drive vehicles. You can listen to it online if you weren't one of those people. People who live like Jesus look like, people who, who've been forgiven by Jesus look like Jesus. They live like Jesus. Okay, now in this section, John is giving us the second test, the second mark of a genuine Christian, and it is the test of love. We've moved from the test of obedience to the test of love, and it turns out that the obedience that we are fundamentally called to as Christians is an obedience of love. Christians don't just live like Jesus. According to John, they love like Jesus. If I could sum up these uh, verses in just a single sentence, it would go something like this. And for those of you who like to take notes and want to walk away with a one, sort of a one-sentence summary of what this passage is about, this is the way I would put it. The reality, the, the, the truth of our experience of the new age is demonstrated in our love for one another. The, the, the reality of our experience of the new age is demonstrated in our love for one another. Now, John makes this point actually by setting up a contrast, a a taste test, as it were. First, in in verses 7 to 8, he talks about the light of love, the light of love. Then second, in verses 9 to 11, he, he completes the contrast. He talks about the darkness of hatred, the darkness of hatred. And then third, in verses 12 to 14, he explains the the reason for our love, why we can love in the first place. 
the reason we love. So as we consider this second test of authentic Christianity, I really want to encourage you to be thinking about your own life and, and ask yourself, does your love for others taste like Jesus? First, the light of love. Go back up and look at verse 7 again. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So if John was asking in the previous verses, verses 1 to 6, whether or not we loved the light, that is, does the love of God move us towards obedience, here he's really turning the image around. Now now he talks about the true Christian is someone who walks in the light of love. So do, do you love the light? Well, if you love the light, then you walk, you live in the light of love. The obedience of the Christian is fundamentally all about love. Now, in these verses, you wonder why I'm talking about love, because in these verses, John doesn't use the word love. Not, not once, not in verse 7 to 8. Instead, he starts with that, that theme of obedience that he began in the verses before, back in, in verse 3, and he reminds his readers that the call to obedience is nothing new. John's not springing something on them here. They heard about this from the very first day they became Christians. But where in verse 3, John talked about obeying God's commands, plural, God's general will for our lives, now he refers to a single commandment. And he says that this single commandment was the message, literally the word that they heard and received From the beginning, this old command or commandment, you could translate it, singular, is the message you have heard. Well, what single commandment could stand for, could sort of sum up the whole gospel message? Well, he tells us there in verse 8, it's the new commandment. John here is referring to Jesus' words, which we heard earlier, uh, read from John's gospel, chapter 13, Verse 34, John 13, verse 34, a new command I give you. This is Jesus talking. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, we can be sure that this is the commandment that John has in mind when he talks about this this new command because of what he's going to say in verses 9, 10, and 11 about loving our brothers. But before he begins to apply it to our lives, John first wants us to see that this commandment sums up the gospel message. Its truth is seen first in in him, that is in Jesus, and then in us, his followers. Friends, this this good news of the gospel message is is good news about God's love. The good news is that God has loved us in and through Jesus Christ. And he's loved us not because we're particularly lovable. I mean, my wife thinks I'm lovable. But, but, but in an absolute scale, compared to God, no, 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 I'm, I'm not lovable. And neither are you. Right? right? God, God doesn't love us because we're particularly lovable. In, in, in contrast, no, no, he's, he's loved us while we were his enemies, while we were in rebellion against him. 
And God loves us not because we're particularly easy to love. I mean, even my wife doesn't think I'm easy to love. No, we're not, we're not easy to love. To the contrary, God's loving us meant that Jesus Christ would lay down his life for us. That's not easy. He, he would actually die for us as a substitute and as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Jesus Christ considered our interests above his own. And the gospel now commands us. It doesn't merely invite us. It actually it commands us in light of this incredible love displayed by God the Father through the Son for sinners like you and me. It commands us, turn away from your sin. Turn away from, from your own self-love and, and come out of the darkness. Come out of the darkness of your sin and come into the light of his love. The gospel asks us to, to put our faith in this Jesus who has loved us in this way and then to follow him. And friends, when, when God's love shown through Jesus Christ in the gospel captures us, when, when we have been loved in this way, well, the, the reality is we can't help but then turn and love others in exactly the same way that we have been loved. This is the power of the light of love that has dawned in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ completely redefines and then radicalizes love, changing love from, from mere emotion, mere affection, which comes and goes, and, and I might love you if you've really done something nice for me, or I might, I might really feel great affection for you if, I don't know, there's some sort of mysterious chemistry or something. No, no, no. Jesus comes along and says, it's not about that. It's not about that at all. It is about a, a radical dying to self, a, a self-denying, sacrificial love. That's how he loved us. And then he re reproduces that love so that, as John says, the truth of the love of God in the gospel is not just seen in Jesus, it is also seen in us, people who have been loved by Jesus. Now, there at the end of verse 8, when John says that the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining, what he's talking about is the new age. He's talking about the life of the kingdom of God and the world to come. And what, he, what he's saying is it's already begun to shine in the world through Jesus Christ and through us who are in Jesus Christ. And the truth of that, the proof, the taste test, as it were, is the light of, of love shining in our lives just like his. We taste like Jesus. Now, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, with all due respect to all the intellectual questions that you have, and with all due respect, and I really do mean that because I know there are real questions out there, with all due respect to the, uh, maybe the, the, the relational, the sort of experiential objections that you have, I've got to ask you, if you're not a Christian, why not? 
Because this is what Christianity is really about. It's not about dreary legalism. It's about love. It's about a life of love. It's about this kind of love. Why wouldn't you want that? Now, maybe this kind of love doesn't sound too attractive to you. Because it is a life of of self-sacrifice for the good of others. Putting others' interests ahead of themselves. And so maybe you like the idea of being loved by God. It's the rest of the story of Christianity that that doesn't seem so attractive. Friend, I've got to say to you that I think that's only because you haven't experienced it yet. You know, Christians don't love one another in order to get God to love us. We, We don't love one another sacrificially in order to get each other to to love us back. That's legalistic manipulation. That's that's tit-for-tat relationship. And honestly, if that's what Christianity were all about, it would be easier to just chuck the whole thing and take care of myself and love the, the small group of people around me that are very close and dear to me. That's not what we're talking about. No, Christians love sacrificially precisely because Jesus loved us that way first. And his love is so good. I mean, sweet. His love is so sufficient. My joy is is now not in taking care of myself and the people that are just closest to me. I'm set set free from that that kind of slavery. I'm set free from that that kind of darkness. And my joy is now being a conduit of his love reproduced in me. And I don't work that up. I don't create that. That is something that happens because the love of Jesus Christ is real. And when it captures you, it changes you. I mean, I think this is a little bit like marriage, right? When you were... Um, single, and you're standing on the outside of marriage, well, marriage, I mean, it looks attractive, but it also looks a little daunting, doesn't it? Right? I mean, it looks like I might get trapped. It looks like there are going to be a lot of duties placed on me. It looks like it might be hard. And so we like it, but we're not so sure. But then you get inside of marriage, and you realize from the inside It's not duty. It's freedom. I don't have to love my wife. I get to love her. I I get to love her every day. I don't have to go to some other house at night, right? Like I did when I was dating her, right? I, I get to stay, and I get to love her. And I get to love her in good days, and I get to love her on bad days. And no, it's not always easy, but it is not duty. It is freedom. Friends, that's what a relationship with God is like. Sure, standing over here on the outside looking at it, it may feel like, yeah, I kind of like your love, but I'm not sure I want to have to love you back. I get that. What I got to say to you is, come into the light. Come into the light. And what you're going to find is it's not like that at all. It's not, now I have to love you back. It's, oh my goodness, I get to love you back. That's what we're talking about here. Now, if you are a believer, 
I want to encourage you to take these two verses to heart, particularly this phrase, the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. This light is the light of eternity. This light is the life of heaven itself. And if you are a Christian, that means that that the light of heaven has already dawned in your life. You understand that in a very real sense, heaven isn't something you're waiting for. It's already here. It's already begun, according to John. Now, the problem, of course, is the thing is, it, it hasn't begun in the way we want it to begin. Right? What we want of heaven is that, that life of rest and ease, that life in which there's no longer sin or toil or pain or sorrow or suffering. And that part of heaven, yeah, that's still in the future. You are waiting for that. The Sabbath rest of Hebrews chapter 4 is still to come. But friends, the love has already begun. The love of heaven has already begun in your life if you, ever, if you are a Christian. Jonathan Edwards described heaven as the world of love. And in Jesus Christ, that world begins here below. It begins in our lives. Only here's, here's the catch, right? Here's the rub. It follows the same pattern that Jesus Christ laid down. That world of love follows the same pattern that Jesus Christ laid down, sacrificial love for our brothers, putting their interests ahead of our own. Now, now Christian, if, if you are a Christian, you know that's not the life of duty. That is the life of heaven, loving in that way. That is heavenly life. That is the power of the light of love. And if we are in Christ, then we expect, what we expect to see is a process in which, as John describes it here, the darkness of sin and self-love is gradually passing away. It is going away. And increasingly, the light of love, gradually, yes, but increasingly, the light of love is shining brighter and brighter in our lives. And do you know why this process happens? It is because heaven yields to no one. Heaven yields to nothing. The light of heaven pushes back the darkness in our lives. I mean, we see this physically in our own world, right? Light always wins. Light wins. Darkness is absence. Darkness is negative. Darkness is the lack of light. When light shows up, the darkness gets pushed back. Friends, the light of heaven has shown up in your life if you are in Jesus Christ. And light always wins. You should expect to see this. Oh, yeah, up and down. Some days are brighter than others. I get that. But you should see this process in your life. Heaven begun here below. So is this you? Is this you? You're here this morning on a Sunday morning. There are a lot of other places you could be. Most of you are here. Some of you are here because you're wanting to think about Christianity. You're not a Christian. You know you're not. You're, you're exploring it. Some of you are here because you're not a Christian, but your family members are, and so you love them and you come along with them. We're really glad you're here. But a lot of you, the vast majority of you are here because you say you're Christians, and you mean to be a Christian. So does, does this describe you? Remember, the question that we're asking 
as we go through 1 John is not just what's authentic Christianity, but what's an authentic Christian? And to answer that, John sets up the taste test, right? He, he, he completes the taste test. He sets up his contrast. So second, let's look at the darkness of hatred. The darkness of hatred. Look at verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. In these verses, John gives us another false claim. He's given us several throughout this letter. And and this time, the false claim is, if you claim to be living in the light, that is, if you claim to have experienced the life of the age to come, but you hate your brother, your, your fellow Christian, John says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not in the light. He says, you're still stumbling around in the darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of self-love. And John paints a really stark picture here. We are either in the light or we are in the dark. According to John, there's no like twilight existence, right? Sort of a Christian, sort of not a Christian, not sure. The indication of where we actually are, are we in the light or are we in the dark? The indication, according to John, is whether we love our fellow Christians or hate them. Now, right away, I think a lot of us pull up short and say, wait a minute, I don't hate anyone, Christian or not. And I think that's probably true, at least the way we most of the time use this word hate. When we use the word hate, we're using it primarily as an, as an emotional term. We, we associate with anger, we associate with malice, with, with ill will towards someone, and and I'm fairly certain that, that most of us, most of the time, actually don't feel those things. We're, we're, we're not filled with malice and ill will uh, t- towards other people. We're, certainly, our lives are not characterized by that, that kind of emotional hatred. That's, I, I, I'll, I'll take that as granted. Right? I'll, I'll give you that. The problem is that's not how John uses this word. For John, both in his gospel and in his letter, hatred is not so much an emotional term as it is a relational term. It means to reject. It means to be averse towards someone or something. So Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's the language of rejection. Or, or again, later in the same gospel, Jesus says, he who hates me hates my father as well. He's not really talking about emotions there. He's saying who, he who rejects me rejects the father as well. And then all of a sudden, when, when, when emotion is drained from the term hate, all of a sudden we realize actually how easily hatred comes. There are all sorts of reasons that we reject each other. How someone looks or acts, their background, their present circumstances, their their neediness, how unlike us they are, 
the discomfort they cause us, the offense that they've given us. You know, understood this way, I think if we're honest, there's a lot more hatred in our lives than we'd like to admit. Because hatred really is so often about me, my comfort, my self-image, my desires, and the fact that other people challenge those things. You challenge that, and so I reject you. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't feel malice towards you. I'm not like emotionally worked up over you, but I reject you. I feel threatened by someone else's success. So I begin to look for and point out all the minor failures that are going on in their lives, you know, so they don't become conceited. That's hatred. I feel overwhelmed by your neediness. And so I avoid you. So I don't get asked the question that I know is coming for help that I don't want to give. Or in my heart, I begin to blame you for your own neediness. You know, if you were just, if you just would make better decisions, then you wouldn't be in the position you're in. That's hatred. I'm annoyed that others don't understand the significance of theology and the church. And so I write them off in my heart as unspiritual. That's hatred. I wonder how you would complete one of those sentences. What does hatred look like in your life? John says that you can tell a Christian, someone who's come into the light, because a Christian isn't characterized by hatred. The general and overall tenor of the Christian's life is not hatred. But John says there in, in uh, verse 10, it's characterized by loving his brother. Now, in focusing on the brother, the fellow Christian, John is not saying that it's okay to hate non-Christians so long as you love Christians. He's not saying that. Far from it. Jesus taught that we are to love our neighbor, whoever our neighbor is. We're even to love our enemy. Now, the point that John is making here is that unlike the people of the world who typically only love those who are closest to them and who have the most in common with them, the family, the clan, the tribe, Christians love those with whom the only thing they have in common is Jesus. You don't have to be in my family, biologically. You don't have to be in my, my clan, my interest group. You don't have to be in my, my tribe, maybe my socioeconomic group, for me to love you. All I need to love you is to have Jesus in common. And the love that we have for one another isn't mere affection. No, the love that we have for one another is defined by Jesus and his love displayed on the cross. It's a commitment to one another to cherish and to favor one another to the point that we're willing to put each other's interests above our own. It's a commitment to sacrificial service for one another without any expectation of being paid back. Now, friends, I, I think the world knows a little bit of this kind of love. It's not that 
People who don't know Christ never show self-sacrificing love. No, no it's, it's that the world shows this kind of love for family, biological family, for friends, people they're related to, or people that they like because they're alike. Christians are marked as those who have come into the light because we show this kind of love to brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we're not related to, people who are not like us. So how are we doing? How are we doing? Young people, young adults, you may love to listen to John Piper and Josh Garrels. But if you're not committed, if you're not interested in sitting down with one of the older members of this church and listening to them talk about their grandchildren that you don't even know, or talk about their creaking joints, how can you be sure you're a Christian? Families. You may be incredibly faithful raising your children in the Lord. You may be having regular family devotions and prayer time, but if you're not building into other families, if you're not building into singles for their growth in the Lord, how do you know you're a Christian? Older saints. You may be incredibly faithful in prayer and in tithing. But if you're not welcoming younger people into this congregation, and that includes their music and their casual dress, how do you know you're a Christian? You see, I think we have to say that if the only Christians, if the only brothers that we love and cherish sacrificially are members of our extended family biologically or members of our Sunday school class or small group of close friends, then maybe we shouldn't be so sure. If the love of Christ is going to distinguish us from the world, then the boundaries of our love must exceed the boundaries of the biological family, the clan, the tribe. You see where I'm going here. John's use of the word brother is radical. And it's consistent with the whole New Testament. Don't misunderstand me. We should not neglect our biological family. And we should not ignore our friends. But at the end of the day, the spiritual family must take precedence over the biological family. And the brother must be loved as a friend. If not, then I'm not sure we're doing anything different than the unbelieving world. Now, I think we're doing this. I want to encourage you just for a moment. I see this happening in this congregation. I see it when, when Steve Morgan, who we just prayed for as deacon of missionary care, I see it when Steve Morgan goes out of his way to befriend Tim Mills, a new and younger member in the congregation, and begins to get together with him weekly to pour his life into Tim. I see it with, with, with Tim Staples, who is not here this weekend because he's off with our high school students on their youth retreat as he continues to pour into youth in this church long after his own kids, you know, grew up and left the home. I see it with Marilee Sauter as she continues to be so concerned for 
the college students and really adopts the college students, what, I don't know, Marilee is, I hesitate to say, I mean, 50 years after you left college yourself? Maybe not quite that long. But, you know, I see it the other way as well. Uh, as, as, as I see Je- Jeff Wahlberg, Jeff's in, there's Jeff, as I see Jeff Wahlberg deciding, hey, I'm going to go down and join the Philathian Sunday school class, our Sunday school class of 70 and 80-year-olds. Right? See, that's, that's love looking for opportunity to cross boundaries of family and clan and tribe. We're doing this, but there's room for growth. Henson Baptist Church, there is room for growth. Right before this service began, I was having a conversation with a dear older member of this congregation. She's been a member here for over 30 years. And, and she was sharing with me, and I did not ask permission, so I'm not going to tell who this was, but she was sharing with me that, that, that she imagines she probably won't have a memorial service here when she dies. And when I asked her why, it's because she said, well, I don't have any family here, and, and most of my friends are gone. Oh, that fills this pastor's heart with sadness, right? That just makes me deeply sad. Now, she hasn't made a decision, and I hope to convince her otherwise. But actually, I hope you're going to convince her otherwise. I hope that our congregation is so known for its love for one another, sacrificially, boundary-crossing ways, that there's not a single older saint here that would even dream of not having a memorial service because all of their peers have gone on ahead or because they don't have family here because they do have family here. And it's us. This is what John is talking about. Now, if you're feeling overwhelmed at this point, if you find yourself with this kind of radical picture of love being put forward by John, if you find, if you find yourself thinking, man, am I, am I even a Christian? Or do I even want to be a Christian? I want to say John understands that feeling. I think he, I think he understands the weight that is pressing down on his readers at just this point. And it's why he writes the next three verses. Because having looked at the light of love and the darkness of hatred, he wants to to land us finally in the reason that we can love, the reason we love. Look at verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Friends, these verses are like a swinging door. They're they're actually setting up the next section, but they're concluding where we've just been. And it's that conclusion that I want us to conclude with. This is the fourth time that John has said, I write to you. And then he says it six times. 
Every time he said it before, though, he said, I write to you, and, and then he wanted them to take some sort of action. I write to you so that you won't sin. I write to you so that you will obey. I write to you so that my own joy will be complete. But this time is different. This time he writes because he wants them to be encouraged. John does not write this letter because he suspects that the people he's writing to are not Christians. No, he's writing this letter because he's sure that they are. And so quite gently here, but then with building force as he repeats himself, John says, you already have the Father's love. You already have the Savior's forgiveness. You already have the Spirit's strength and power. So even as I have put forward this daunting vision of love, do not despair. He says it to the whole congregation. I write to you, dear children. He's not, he's not referring to biological children there. This is the phrase that he uses throughout to refer to the whole flock. But, but, then, he, but then he focuses in on the older members of the congregation, fathers. And, and in typical Greek style, in using the masculine, he's including the feminine as well. So fathers and mothers. And, and then he turns and he looks at the younger members of the congregation, young men, that is young men and young women. You already have what you need for this life of love. Notice the tense of the verb that he uses. He does not say, I'm writing this so that you will know the Father, so that you will overcome the evil one, so that you will be forgiven. No, he says, I'm writing this because you already have been forgiven. I'm writing this because you already have known the Father, because you already have overcome the evil one. And then he says it again just in case they didn't catch it the first time. It's kind of how in the ancient world, you put what you wrote in bold. You, you know, they couldn't put stuff in bold, right? So say it again. Emphasis. Friends, here is the power to love. Here is the power to live out this vision of the Christian life. It is the truth of the gospel that you have already received, that you have already put your faith in. And it really takes us right back to where we began in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Dear friends, no. That's, a, that's not a good translation. I just got to say it. I don't like saying it, but I got to say it. It's, it's, it's accurate, but, but literally, it's beloved. Beloved, beloved by the Father, beloved by the Son, if you are in Christ, the Lord has loved you in just this way, and he continues to love you. And through that love, he is reproducing in you the life of the Son, his only Son, the son whom he loves. Friends, the darkness is passing. The light is already shining, and you, if you are in Christ, you are becoming the new original, the image of Jesus Christ, whose truth is seen in you. 
Let the world see that in our love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our petty loves for our narrow and cramped love. Father, we pray that you would give us a a true vision, a true sight of your great love for us in Jesus Christ and that that love would indeed capture us and transform us the world might see, not that we are lovely people, but just how lovely Christ is, that the world would see not how good we are at loving, but how amazing Christ's love is as it works its way in and through us. This is our prayer, Lord, and we give it in Christ's name. Amen.